0: When you hire a professional whether it's to mow your lawn or to do your taxes or to take care of your health or to manage your finances you're hiring an expert they're going to do a better job the other benefits of it is that you get back time
1: hello and welcome to the daily helping with dr richard schuster food for the brain knowledge from the experts tools to win at life Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I'm really excited to share with you today's guest, Peter Lazaroff. He knew from a young age that he had a future in investing. Today, Peter is the Chief Investment Officer at Plant Corp, which manages over $4 billion for his clients. What makes Peter unique is his personable, big brother perspective. And he's here to share insights from complex issues and making them understandable for anyone. His book, which just came out, Making Money Simple, is something that we're gonna talk about. And he's going to translate the financial landscape in today's world and make it make sense for you and your money. Peter, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Dr. Richard. So this is gonna be a really cool one. And, and I know your book just came out, so we're gonna spend some time talking about that in a bit. But it's it's so interesting to me because you knew at a very young age that you wanted to get involved in investing, which is a pretty strange thing for a young kid to say. Talk to us about that a little bit.
0: So I remember the first exposure I got to investing was on my 12th birthday. My grandmother had given me a share of Nike stock. And I have a December 20th birthday. And so I can remember the room, I can remember the fireplace, the Christmas tree, everything in there. And And that's an age where when you got a video game, you're really excited or something cool. And I get this piece of paper and it says Nike on it. And it actually has the swoosh on it. And i like, I don't get it. And I thought it was a pretty lame gift. But we started talking about it over time and Nike happened to split. And so instead of one share, so they had two. And then a few months later after that split again, so I had four shares. But most impressive to my 12-year-old mind was the fact that I was getting these $1 checks in the mail every quarter. And I hadn't done any work. And I thought it was fascinating. And to me, that's what hooked me. And I started opening the paper to check the Nike stock price. And my grandmother continued to give me a share of a company that I was familiar with the brand in each birthday up until age 18. And I wasn't a big reader uh, as a child. And I remember asking my parents, can I go find a book on investing for kids? And they're like, yes, please, please go read a book. Um, and they took me to this bookstore and I got a book by Peter Lynch, who's a really famous mutual fund manager. And I didn't know that at the time. I just looked at the cover and arbitrarily chose something. And ultimately that book you know, inspired me. And it was very cool that there were a lot of things you could do at a young age to end up with more money. And I had some allowance and I worked jobs um, from age 13 through college. And what I thought I wanted to do when I was 12 was something with stocks. Certainly by 16 in high school, and if you told me, I'm going to college, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'm going to do something with stocks. And I'm one of those very unusual people who... Granted, that's a pretty nebulous term. By the time I got out of college, I was roughly correct. I became an analyst and trader, a portfolio manager and a wealth manager, and slowly worked my way up the chain to director investment research and then now uh, to chief investment officer. But the you know, I think I was really lucky to find that passion early and still today, you know, I think of reading about investments as a hobby, just like following baseball for me is a hobby. It's truly a passion. I love the aspect of solving puzzles, so to speak, uh, for clients or personal or theoretical. And I feel really fortunate to be in that position.
1: It's It's a really interesting story. And so obviously, grandma is the reason why this was instilled in you in such a young age. So her to thank for sure. When you got out and you started actually doing this, and and what you shared was very familiar in the sense that a lot of people who love what they do describe it exactly as you did. You love stocks as much as you love baseball. And so, you know, that's a common theme. But when when you got out, how were you able to, because there's a lot of people in that space and that there's, it's a very, very heavy traffic area. How were you able to kind of stand apart? What were you able to do that was different? So I was very fortunate in that I had
0: a great mentor. I shared a desk with the chief investment officer of my first firm. And I remember having you know, the first week or two saying, Hey, is there anything else I can do? Is there anything else I could do? And eventually, he looked at me and said, You need to learn something new every single day. I go, okay. Uh, which was really broad. And what I started doing was taking notes. Um, what I was reading, because I couldn't remember everything. And I remember being in a meeting, a portfolio manager meeting where... There was a discussion about a topic and people didn't really understand it. And I raised my hand and said, I am hap- I have some notes on that. I'm happy to forward them. And I forwarded it to the president of the company. He said, this is great. Why'd you do this? I go, I actually do it every day. He said, well, can you send them to me every day? I go, sure. I mean, they're on a lot of different topics. So I can't always swear they're useful. But you know, I started saying them to him every day. And a few months later, we're in another portfolio manager meeting and a topic comes up and the president says, well, in Peter's daily notes... And everyone goes, what what are these notes? And eventually, I started distributing those to all the portfolio managers. And so these bullet points uh, that I was making eventually turned into sentences and sentences started to turn into paragraphs. And as I was a young person out trying to develop business, uh, I remember roughly around the age of 25, I started trying to bring in clients and not many people wanted to give a 25-year-old a million dollars, which was our firm's minimum. And so I started writing. I started doing email marketing. And I think I was a pretty early adopter of some of those practices, but generally speaking, writing special newsletters that were separate from the company newsletter, blogging. And I just got a passion because the feedback from everyone was, "You know, I've never really understood that, but you just made it so simple. And so in my mind, it clicked. I'm going to help teach people to do things. And what's interesting is my dad was a pediatrician. And I remember doing rounds with him because he did do some um, teaching for the medical uh, school. Uh, Washington University, which is here in St. Louis. And I remember asking questions about the kids learning because, you know, it didn't look like a classroom to me. And I was pretty young when he told me this. But in medical school, the way you learn something is that you see one, you do one, and then you teach one. And writing became my teach one. And it was really fun. And I always loved seeing the light bulb go off in people's heads. And so I think that's really how I took a different path. Uh, in the field of wealth manager where there are a lot of people there, you can become credentialed. You know, I have my CFA and my CFP, but of good advisors, who doesn't? And so (laughs) I think trying to speak in my voice and the newest project being this book, that's been the one way I think I've stood out in my career thus far.
1: How early on did you know you were going to write that book? Because it sounds like you were always doing it, but, you know, in newsletter form, essentially. Right. I think I wanted to write a book Six
0: or seven years ago, and I sort of started and spent a week on it, and then just stopped. But when I got the motivation again was uh, in December 2016. Every year, I tend to make two lists of goals, and they're you could call them New Year's resolutions, but they're really goals, and they're you know they're specific and they're obtainable, and there's a timeline to them. But the personal goals I wrote at the very top was write a book, and that was not on the professional side. I'm not sure why I put it on there. My wife was pregnant with our second child. I knew that meant that when our oldest child went to bed and she went to bed early because she was tired, gave me a lot of time at night uh, to myself. And I felt like this was the book I had in me. I wanted to sort of outline my general philosophy on building wealth and the system that I have used prior to getting married and getting married and the system that I use professionally with our clients at Corp. And we built a digital advisor in 2017. And a lot of it's based on some of the system that I build and use myself and advise others to use. And you know, I had a blank page and it just started happening. Now, I think I probably would have failed on the project like I did the first time. But I had met an author who had just written her first book and she started the day after she had had her first child. And I thought, oh my goodness, how in the world was that possible? And she told me that she hired a project manager as so just someone to bully her to write. And I did that maybe a month into writing. And somebody who is strategically texting me, hey, have you written this chapter yet? Or hey, are you writing yet? I know this was supposed to be your morning to write. And So having that person there really made a difference in me progressing the project. And then writing a book versus writing an article. So I have a website, peterlazaroff.com, where I post regularly. But I also write for the Wall Street Journal and for Forbes. But those all have word count limits. 600 words, 800 words. When I got a blank page, something really did change about my writing where I was able to tell more stories and describe more more nuanced examples that I think could resonate with people and it just became fun and I, I think there was the very beginning process the first four or five chapters just flew out onto the page the next I had to take some breaks in between and I wrote a blog post on my own blog about the process of writing the book and how it was in fits and starts, but it never left my desk it was always there and It was really just so enjoyable. I don't know that I knew that I always wanted to write one, but it had been a while. And now that I have written one, I will tell you, I'm fairly certain I'll do
1: another one, but I definitely could use a breather for a few years. (laughs) (laughs) So Making Money Simple is here, it's out. So you've kind of teased the system. Let's talk about this book. So first, take us through the basic tenets of how do you make money simple? So... Let's start by the fact that
0: most people get paralyzed when they have to make money decisions in part because there's so many different places to start and once you find where to start the underlying choices can be complex and numerous and so I think the very beginning is trying to figure out and focus on just a few key things and the place where I like to start is what's the end game what are your goals One of the earliest chapters is start with the end in mind. And it's really fascinating that there's been a lot of research that the neural patterns in our brain are the same for saving as giving a complete stranger your money. and That's a big problem. That's a really big barrier. If we think of saving as giving money completely away to somebody we don't know, you have to find a way around that. And so I think when you think of the good money practices, the basics, it's starting to figure out what are my goals. Everyone wants to retire, sure. But in the book, I try to guide you through goals that are meaningful and how to prioritize those from a pure math standpoint. So like what is optimal in terms of ordering your goals. But also, there's a lot of research now on how to spend your money to get the most happiness out of it. For example, experiential purchases have far longer lasting happiness than material items. And experiential purchases can be a vacation, or even just an elaborate date night. And so recognizing that can be really helpful as you prioritize goals. Purchases that create time can bring more happiness. But then also realizing something like the biggest consumption of all in America is our house. Housing is not an investment, it's just a giant piece of consumption. And understanding what parts of your house will give you lasting happiness versus not is really important. So I think when you start the basics, it's trying to define these goals And then backing into what it takes to get there. Something I call reverse budgeting, where nobody wants to budget. No one wants to open up a spreadsheet every week or every day and keep track. That's a recipe for failure. And so when you back into the savings you need to do and automate them, what you're doing is you are giving yourself the best chance of making intentional progress to your goal. And a common theme throughout the book is that as humans, we're not hardwired to make good money decisions. As we evolved as a species, we have a very short history with data. I mean, the scientific revolution only happened 500 years ago, but our DNA is very similar to that of the cognitive revolution from 40,000 years ago. And so we're structured to, be in, to react to things in a way that is not aligned with making good money decisions. And throughout the book, I try to highlight, it's not a behavioral science book or a behavioral science book. But I do try to highlight those big issues that you will run into and then acknowledge, look, you're not going to take human nature out of humans. So how do you build around that? And so at the core, to circle back to your original question, when it gets down to the basics, it's building a system that makes it easy to make the right decisions over and over again with very little effort on your part on an ongoing basis. And that's what's going to set you up for the best chance of success
1: you had mentioned in that automation. So I, I'm curious to learn more about that. But let's let's pull the curtain back on the system itself a little bit more. Give us a high-level overview of what that looks like. So if we're going to do something
0: called reverse budgeting, and if you want to find the worksheets that I have in the book, if you don't feel like going out and buy the book, you can get them at peterlazaroff.com slash worksheets. But basically what you're doing is you're laying out your goals into three different timeframes, short-term, which is five years or less, intermediate term five to fifteen years and long term 15 years or more and for those short-term goals I'm telling you you have to put retirement savings and emergency fund at the top of those no matter what and you might say well wait retirement's not within five years but maxing out your retirement account is an annual goal it should be at the very top um, having an emergency fund and funding it doesn't have to be funded overnight it should be at the very top but then you're putting things like paying down certain debts or maybe taking some sort of vacation or uh, buying a new home, first home, a second home, whatever. You take those five month goal, or excuse me, those five-year goals, and when you divide by 60, which is 60 months in five years, what you see is your monthly savings requirement. And you can reverse budget that and automate it and send cash flows to these different goals in a tax efficient manner. So some goals like retirement, you're not going to send a cash, you're going to send it to your retirement account. Some goals related to, say, properties, you might send to cash or emergency fo- goals, you're going to send to cash. But some you might send to a portfolio that's a mix of stocks and bonds. that's super conservative. But when you focus on saving, instead of the spending, you can't spend what you don't have. And when I think of traditional budgets, you're trying to line item things and you say, Oh, no, I'm over my monthly budget for eating out. But my best friend is having a birthday dinner. You're gonna go. You know, it's, it's just for life. The money's all fungible, and when you get there and you have all the pieces going where they need to go automatically, well, then you can just step back and live your life. The benefit, you know, and that's on the short-term goal side. I'll quickly say the benefit of doing the intermediate-term goals and the long-term goals is really more about the visualization and trying to especially if you have a significant other that you're working through this with to talk about your values and it really highlights what's important to you and if you have enough cash flow to support all your short-term goals great turn to your intermediate goals but the other thing is is not going you're not going to have enough cash flow to address all goals of all time frames and that's what investing is for and it kind of highlights the fact that you're going to need to compound your money at a higher rate and and after The first section of the book is all about goal setting and setting up that system and automating it with really specific instructions, highly actionable. The second section of the book is about investing because you get to that point where, okay, we can't just save up for cash. We have to grow it at a rate greater than inflation in order to make this work. And the third section, since I'm going section by section here, is more of those one-time, less frequent events that you know can be pretty costly if you don't make the right set of decisions. And so trying to provide some guidance there.
1: You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. So let's talk a little bit about investing. And, and one of the questions that I have is that we're we've we've been in this space for a good 20 years or so where somebody can kind of be an armchair stock guy in his own home. Uh, you know, through E-Trade and some of these other things that popped up in the late 90s. So what would you say, you know, in terms of guiding someone towards giving it a shot on their own or using somebody like yourself? And so talk to us about those differences, pros and cons. Well, I
0: will say that there are... I wrote the book with the idea that maybe people could take all the information and do it themselves. However, the very last chapter is, if you decide there's some part of this that seems overwhelming, hire an advisor. Now, there's a large part of Wall Street that says, you can't do this yourself. You know, This is like brain surgery. You wouldn't perform brain surgery on yourself. And then there's another part of Wall Street that says, you can totally do this on your own. Just use our platform and we'll give you everything you need. I don't think that this stuff, the brain surgery is the right comparison or any kind of surgery, um, any kind of medical procedure. I think it's more in tune with something like mowing your lawn. So uh, when I bought my first home, uh, I wanted a big yard for some reason. And I remember mowing the lawn. It you know, generally took me 90 minutes to do the front and backyard. And it looked fine. But the year that I had my first child, you know, which was in May, I said, I'm going to hire somebody to do it. It's 35 bucks a week. Fine. And what I didn't realize is while I was mowing my lawn on my own, and it was all fine. And it wasn't like there was a problem. When a professional started doing it, they started doing things that I hadn't thought of before, like seeding strategically in certain areas or cutting the grass at different lengths depending on their sunlight exposure. They edged around you know, my landscaping. You know, generally they cut in different directions. It looked better in the end. And then, similarly, you know, sometimes on a Saturday when I'm like, you know, I, don't, I mean, I'll cut the grass tomorrow. I don't really feel like it, and I wouldn't have checked the weather, and then it rains. Then I can't do it Sunday. And then I got work Monday and Tuesday. Then suddenly the grass is really long. It's really hard to do. So those two items combined where life gets busy and you don't always know what you don't know makes the value of hiring a professional extremely valuable. And money lessons in life, you typically learn the lesson first. Excuse me. You typically get tested first and then you learn the lesson. And those money lessons are really expensive when you hire a professional, whether it's to mow your lawn or to do your taxes or to take care of your health or to manage your finances, you're hiring an expert. They're going to do a better job. The other benefits of it is that you get back time. So earlier I'd said purchases that lead to happiness scientifically. One of those is purchases and expenses that create more time. And there are a lot of smart people in the world a lot of people could figure out how to manage their finances correctly, but it is a full-time job. It is not something that you can read a few articles here or there, you know, invest here or there, even a set-it-and-forget-it investment portfolio that's super low-cost and properly diversified and rebalances. Well, there's other areas of your financial life where you could be proactive. And it's those little things at the margin with the power of compounding over multiple decades that turn into enormous results. And so generally, I'm obviously really biased. I believe in hiring an advisor. For what it's worth, I am a certified financial planner. I am a CFA, which is a chartered financial analyst. And yet I have hired an advisor. So I used to manage my own financial life. And this year, I made the decision to hire an advisor in part because of the time piece, in part because I wanted a third party to bounce ideas off of and push back and object to. And in part because I just realized, even though I am good at some of this stuff, you know, there are people who are better at little tax strategies than I am or estate planning strategies. And they hold me accountable and they're proactive. And I can't have that, oh, I'm not going to mow the lawn on Saturday type issue with my finances arrive if somebody is being paid to make sure that everything is done and gets in order.
1: It makes sense. And so listening to this, obviously, the value of having that person is... There. Talk to us then. There's a lot of people out there in this space we talked about earlier. What are the right questions that we can ask when hiring financial professionals so we know that we're getting somebody that actually knows what they're doing and isn't just a paper tiger?
0: Really good question. And chapter 12 of the book really outlines this for you. And I have a worksheet on my website about questions to ask an advisor once you go through the interview. But before you start interviewing an advisor... I think there are a few things you're looking for. Um, You're looking for someone who's properly trained. So, in my mind, a CFP is your kind of basic comprehensive financial planning designation. Certainly, someone who got their CFP a year ago is going to be fresher on a lot of the topics than someone who got it 40 years ago. But um, CFP, CPA, CFA, those are those kind of gold standard designations in my mind for the type of uh, education and ongoing continuing education that you would want from an advisor. So that's one piece. You can go to findacfp.org and search by location and state if you want to find somebody locally. The other thing that you'll want to do is you'll ask friends and families for references. You will then go to those websites and you don't want to judge a book by its cover, but you also want to make sure that people are not operating out of a paper box. Sometimes you want to go to a website and see... Do they have content related to me? Do they meet the needs I have? You want to go to advi- uh, brokercheck.org also, where you see if anybody that you're evaluating has any sort of regulatory uh, flags up against them. But once you get to the actual asking questions of advisors, one of the challenges we have, particularly as you interview multiple advisors, is that you probably won't interview Them one right after another. You'll probably be separated by a couple days or maybe even a couple weeks. And we don't have the best memories. And we don't necessarily ask people the same questions. And uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize uh, for behavioral economics, has something called a structured interview where you ask the same questions of people and you score them one to five. And if you're doing this with a significant other, you each have your own scorecards. And you try to ask them in the same order, give people the same opportunity to answer them. And then that way you have a highly objective, quantitative metric for what you thought of a different advisor. Because what happens is you forget what somebody said and you forget that you asked one person this and not the other person. And I think you know, those questions, again, you can find them on my website. There's a score sheet. There's the questions. There's what I view as ideal questions. Those are the types of things that people don't do enough. I'm genuinely excited when a prospective client comes to PlanCorp and is asking hard questions. Too many people show up and they only want answers about themselves. And look, it is all about the client. But if you're going to invest money in hiring an advisor, the biggest favor you can do yourself is to invest the time and effort into picking someone who is going to be a good fit for you.
1: No, that's great stuff, and you've given a lot of links and URLs, and we're gonna we're gonna connect. Yeah, sorry about that. No, <laughs> no, no. It's, it's there's nothing to apologize for. That's great stuff. For those listening in the car, don't have your pen in hand. We're gonna connect all of those things that Peter's mentioned in the show notes for his episode at DailyHelping dot com, as well as in the Daily Helping app. But Peter, this has been fantastic. I, I've loved the information you've given us. Some great actionable stuff. So, as you know, I, I like to wrap up every episode, Peter, with a question, and that I ask all my guests what is their biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after hearing our discussion today? We haven't talked about this, but the most important thing is start
0: now. There is something that everybody can do to improve their finances. And even if it's small, one of the things we don't respect is the power of compounding. I think writing this book, not just from an investment in bank account compounding sense, but small habits compound over time. And if you start today, I assure you there's something that can change the rest of your life in your finances. And what's really amazing about it is it's not like going to the gym where you have to keep going. You know, with finances, you can have a 30-minute financial workout. As I do air quotes that nobody can see with my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> a financial workout that's 30 minutes, and gives you a six-pack. So imagine that. And I'll give you one more URL smartmoneyquiz.com is nine questions, and you will have three to four areas that give you actionable advice where to start today. And I can, there's probably something that you're thinking about that you've been putting off. All the listeners are thinking to themselves, yeah, there is a, whatever that thing is, go ahead and go home and block off some time on your calendar to do it. If you're not sure what that is, my hope is something like smartmoneyquiz.com can help you out.
1: Perfect. And Peter, tell us that URL one more time for yourself where people can find out more about you and get their hands on your book.
0: Yeah, peterlazaroff.com is my website. Everything I do eventually ends up on there and you can follow me on social media once you get there. That also has links to the book Making Money Simple, which you can order really anywhere that sells books. And um, Dr. Richard, I really appreciate the time to talk to you. This has been great.
1: Yes, it's been been a phenomenal discussion. Thank you for coming on.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And thanks also to each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this helps other people like yourself find our podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are. And post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.